theme this year is, is more than enough. And I love the song that the lady sang at the beginning of the service this morning that really emphasized uh, that theme, and I was encouraged by that and blessed by that. And in order for us to understand, uh, to get a better grasp of that theme, we're spending a little bit of time on Sunday nights dealing with this subject or this theme, this idea of men who are not enough, men who are not enough. And of course, we understand that the Apostle Paul sort of you know, led the way and, and led us to this particular thought and this idea, but we've gone back to the beginning, and a few Sunday nights ago, we talked about Moses. And of course, you remember when God called Moses, he wanted really no part of what God was calling him to do. And then uh, last time that we were together on a Sunday night, we uh, that uh, we didn't have a guest with us. We talked about Joshua. And of course, you study the first chapter of Joshua and you'll sense that there's a, there's a little bit of fear because the Lord has to tell him on several occasions, be strong and very courageous. Uh, be strong and of good courage. And God has to repeat that message over and over again. Why? Because Joshua looked at himself and understood, I am not enough. Now, I am not capable of doing this job that God has called me to do. Well, that brings us to another character, another man in the Bible. By the way, by the way, let's just be real frank here tonight. There's no man that is enough. Uh, we, we certainly understand that. There is no man who is capable of, in his own flesh, and his own strength, of doing what it is that God would have him to do. But tonight we're going to look at the character Gideon. You're there in Judges chapter number 6, and I want you to consider with me his call tonight, Judges uh, chapter number 6. And if you'll look with me, beginning in verse, verse number 11, and there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Already there's a sense here of fear and, and of, uh, of, of hiding and doing things in secrecy for fear of the Midianites by Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, <laughs> thou mighty man of valor. Gideon said unto him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us, and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O oh my Lord, I am not enough. And that's essentially what he says. O oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee. And thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. You know, there may not be more of an unlikely hero in all of the Bible than this man by the name of Gideon. You know, some, sometimes we hear of these, uh, these monikers, one of them is, you know, the most likely to succeed. You, you've heard of that. Maybe some school will have that for a senior class. Well, the truth of the matter is we would never, we would never do this because it would be offensive and sort of hurtful. But if you were to have a least likely to succeed, <laughs> Gideon would probably be Gideon would probably be named on that. If you were to look at the Bible and you were to say, who's the least likely to do anything great 
for God, Gideon would probably be near the top of the list. Now, following the leadership of Joshua, there came a period in Israel's history that's known as the the time of the Judges. And to be very honest, if you'll read through the book of Judges, you'll discover that this was a very dark and a very difficult time for the people of God. Interestingly enough, we find a, we find a pattern, we find a, 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 a theme that is played out over and over and over again in this book, and, it, and, it's, and it's found in Judges chapter number 6, and I want you to see it. Here's basically, almost every chapter will contain a similar story, and here it is. Number one is that the people of God rebel and sin against God. Look in Judges chapter 6 and verse number 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we, we're finding, again, we're discovering this theme, and it's found in this chapter. It's found in almost every story that uh, appears to us in the book of Judges. It begins right here, where the people rebel and the people sin against the Lord God. And the next element or the next portion of this pattern that is almost like clockwork that we can see in the book of Judges is this number two, that the Lord sends judgment upon his people. Usually, it's in the form of some foreign power that invades the nation of Israel, their territory, and causes them to uh, be in service to them, to be enslaved to them. Look what the Bible says. Here, Here we go, the children of Israel. Verse number one, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice what the Lord did. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. So here's the pattern. The pattern is that the people of God rebel and sin against God. How does God respond? It's obvious the Lord is in this. Verse number one makes that abundantly clear. The Lord then delivers them into the hand of the Midianites and into the hand of the Amalekites and into the hand of the children of the east. And so we're following this pattern. But notice there's a third element to this particular pattern or this theme that we see, and that is this, that the people then cry unto the Lord for mercy and for help. And so we understand there's, there's sin and wickedness, There's judgment from God, and eventually there comes a cry unto the Lord for mercy and help. Would you look in Judges chapter 6 and verse number 6? Notice, and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. They got to a point where they they thought to themselves, why are we doing this? This is silly. What is wrong with us? We're the people of God. Our God still sits in heaven. He still reigns from his throne. And, and, and they would get sick and tired of the condition and the, 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 the way that they were living. And they would cry unto God. You'll see this over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Notice the fourth part of this pattern is, is that God sends a deliverer or a judge who lead the people out of oppression and out of bondage. Would you look in verse number 11? We read it already. 
The Bible says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Why did this angel of the Lord come to this man by the name of Gideon? Verse 14, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. So again, if you were to read the book of Judges, you would find in almost every chapter a similar account. But you know, the story of Gideon stands apart from the rest. It, it stands out because of several reasons. It stands out certainly because of the might of the enemy that Gideon found himself up against. Would you look in Judges chapter 7? Look in Judges chapter 7. Look what the Bible says about the strength of the army that Gideon was going against in verse number 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. In other words, when the, when the Israelites looked at this great army that was camped in the valley, in their minds they said, there's no way that we could number this army. There's too many of them. It looks like just a big swarm of, 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 uh, of, of grasshoppers there in the field. There's no way we can number them. We can't even number their animals, their beasts, their cattle, their camels. And the Bible tells us exactly how many of them there were. In Judges chapter number 8 and verse number 10, the Bible tells us the entire army consisted of 135,000 men. That's a, that's a significant army that Gideon found himself up against. The story's significant because the, ba the bondage that they were in lasted for seven years, according to Judges 6 and verse number 1. The story's significant because it led the people to be greatly impoverished. In other words, when they went against the Midianites, they were not coming to them from a position of strength, but they were coming to them from a position of serious weakness. But listen, the real reason, the real reason that this story is so well known, the real reason this story stands out it's because of the man that God chose to lead and deliver Israel and because of the way that God delivered them. We're emphasizing, of course, the grace of God and the strength of God as being sufficient in our lives, as being not just enough, but more than enough. But listen, before we ever get there, before we ever arrive at this point where we understand God's grace is sufficient and his strength is made perfect in weakness, we must come to the point, we must come to the acknowledgement that we understand that for him to be enough, we are not enough. That's where it must begin. Any man, any man, any woman who sees himself or herself as enough, whether you're looking at your talent and your ability, perhaps your finances, maybe your charisma, you look at whatever it is that God has given you to do and you think, yeah, I can handle this. This will be no problem. This will be no sweat. I I've done this a million times before. I know what I'm doing. I know how to go about doing this or doing that. Any man, any man who sees himself as enough, listen, that man, that woman is not a candidate for God to use. God, God can't use somebody like that. When, when, you and I, when you and I look at ourselves and we think to ourselves, well, sure, sure God would use me. Look at me. It's in that moment, God says, no, I can't use you. Because God only uses men who are not enough. God uses men who understand that my strength is not sufficient 
That my talent is not sufficient. That my ability is not sufficient. You know, Paul's, Paul had a frustration with his thorn. We looked at that the very first Sunday night that we talked about this theme. And, and, and you know, his, his frustration with this thorn, that was a natural response. In other words, that's the response all of us would have. You know, the thing that, the thing that bothers us, the thing that troubles us, the, the thing that, that gets us down and gets us low, that, that's a frustration to us. We, we understand that. But listen, Paul's attitude completely changed when God taught him this vital truth that it was, it was either this, it was either no thorn but no power or it was a thorn and power. Gideon would learn a similar lesson. And the lesson is this, you can have 32,000 soldiers and lose or you can have 300 and win. In our lives, we must eventually arrive at the same conclusion. Here is the conclusion. More of us always equals less of him. But on the other hand, less of me, less of us equals more of him. The sooner we come to the place where we are okay with being not enough will be the place where we truly discover his power and his grace are more than enough to make up for any deficiency or weaknesses that you and I might have. I want you to notice a few things here in our text tonight that I hope will be a help to you as they've been a help to me because I believe Gideon's story perfectly illustrates this truth. Number one, I want you to consider with me Gideon's weakness. Gideon's weakness. Would you look in verse number 13? I find two specific of chapter six. I find two specific weaknesses in Gideon's life as we, as, we, as we discover him here threshing wheat under cover of darkness. Number one, his first weakness is this, that his faith in God, when God comes to him, his faith in God was shaken. That's a weakness. That Gideon's faith in God was shaken. Look in verse number 13. Remember the Lord come to him and he said, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And can I just paraphrase what verse number 13 says? Gideon looks at this angel and he says this, it sure doesn't feel like the Lord is with us. Sure doesn't seem like the Lord is with us. I mean, if he's with us, where are all these miracles we've heard about? I mean, all my life I was raised hearing about what God did in bringing the children of Israel out of the nation of Egypt, out of bondage, and how God brought them to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parted, and they walked across on dry ground, and they marched into, into, the, uh, into the land of Canaan, and the walls of Jericho fell down, and all of these amazing things happened. Where is that God today? His faith was shaken. You know, we really are, as people, aren't we as human beings, we're prisoners of the moment. In other words, in other words, it doesn't matter what God might have done for you in the past. If, if at this moment in time, it feels like you're down and out, it feels like you're struggling, it feels like God isn't hearing you, and God's a million miles away, if in this moment that's the way you feel, it's almost as if we, we, we so easily forget about everything God has done in the past. It's almost as if, well, if he's not doing anything for me now, well, then he's, he's, he's no good, and he, and he doesn't exist, and he's not real. And that's essentially what, what, what Gideon is saying. When God came to Gideon to reveal his plans for Gideon to deliver his people, the Israelites were at a very low point as it relates to morale. They had been in bondage for seven years, and they were greatly impoverished. The Lord appeared to Gideon and told him that the Lord was with them, and Gideon's response is, is a telling one. 
And basically, it's what we said a moment ago. Gideon basically said, sure doesn't feel like it. And I just have to tell you that one of the most dangerous things that you and I can do in this life is to live by our feelings. That's where Gideon's at. Doesn't, doesn't feel like God's on his throne. Doesn't feel like the Lord is with me. Doesn't feel like the Lord is very powerful. No, the Lord, he says, has forsaken us. Why wasn't God showing them miracles and delivering them from bondage? Stop and think about that for a moment. See, Gideon's living by his feelings. What Gideon needed to do is he needed to live by the truth of God's word. And what had God promised? God had promised his people that if you'll, if you'll abide by my word, if you'll obey my commands, if you'll keep yourself from idolatry and you'll keep yourself from marrying your, your sons to, to, to pagan women and marrying your daughters to pagan men, and if you'll, if you'll keep a heart for me, I will be with you. Instead, they're off living, their, living by their feelings. Never stopping for a moment to consider, wait a minute. Maybe, just maybe, God has turned a deaf ear to us for seven years. Maybe, just maybe, the miracles of God have dried up. Maybe, possibly, it's because of the way we're living. And if we would just get right with God, and if we quit, if we quit living by our feelings, and we'd start living by faith, maybe, just maybe, we can begin to see the miracles of God again. See, that's the way it works. But instead, they're having a pity party. Doesn't feel like God is with us. Doesn't feel like God is near, that God is going to do anything strong in our lives. Can I tell you that the greatest threat, the greatest threat to our faith growing and abounding is this. It's unconfessed and tolerated sin in our lives. It's the greatest threat. You want to you grow? You want to be a man of God? You want to be a woman of God? Get, get the sin out of your life. Confess it. Repent of it. Forsake it like we talked about this morning. And you, you, you get that out of your life and you give that over to the Lord and you, and you, and you get, do business with God and you'll find, listen, you'll find growth. Listen, unconfessed sin builds a wall between us and God. And it keeps us, listen, it keeps us from seeing his mighty hand. And listen, the end result of all of that is a greatly reduced faith. So what's Gideon's weakness? Well, number one, his first weakness is that his faith in God was shaken. There's a second weakness, and that is this. Number two, that his self-confidence was low. His self-confidence was low. Again, verse number 15, look what he says. He says, he says, oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You know, Gideon was convinced he couldn't be a deliverer because he didn't have the right background. He didn't have the right pedigree for such a thing. He came, by his own admission, he came from one of the poorest families in his tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. And if that weren't enough, he says, not only am I from one of the poorest families in my tribe, but he says, I am the least in my family. I'm, I'm guessing that means he's saying I'm the youngest. I'm the one that everyone expects the least out of. I'm the least likely to succeed. Now listen, I'm not here to beat the drum on self-love because I really don't think that's a problem for most of us in our lives. Self-love is not usually too much of an issue for most of us. But listen, low self-confidence can be a real issue for those called by God. 
There's no doubt, there is no doubt in my mind that there's some people in this church, there's some people in this church who could be and should be doing more, but in their minds are saying, I could never do that. I could never sing in that choir. I could never stand in front of that congregation and hold a microphone in my hand and sing. I could never give a testimony. I could never teach a class. I could never work a bus route. I could never serve in this way or in that way. And again, it could be a myriad of reasons. Gideon's reasons were, I'm from the poorest, I'm from the poorest tribe, the family in the tribe of Manasseh, and in my family, I'm the least. That was his excuse. Maybe you have a similar excuse. Maybe you say, you don't, you don't know where I'm from. You, you don't know how I was raised. You don't know how I was, how, how I was brought up. You don't know the, the family that I come from and some of the problems that we've dealt with. No one wants to hear anything from me. And I'm just simply saying, listen, listen, Gideon's self-confidence was low. And as a result, as a result, it nearly caused him to miss what God wanted him to do. The whole point of the matter is that you and I get to the point where we say, no, I can't. But he can. That, that's, the, that's the whole theme. That's the whole point of this. There may be some of you in here who've been called to do more than you're doing and you've used the excuse, I can't. It could be I can't marry that person. I can't teach that class. I can't sing in that choir. I can't lead that ministry. Gideon said I can't deliver God's people because I'm from a poor family and because I'm the least esteemed in that poor family. Gideon doesn't exactly inspire confidence in these introductory verses, does he? I mean, as we're reading the story, we're thinking, hey, this guy, this guy is destined for greatness. No, he doesn't seem to be destined for greatness. But listen, this is exactly the type of people God likes and God chooses to use. You don't believe me? Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The whole, the whole point, the whole point is God says, I'm choosing you, Gideon. And Gideon says, why would you choose me? I'm from the poorest family in the tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And God says, that's exactly why I'm choosing you. So that, so that when this thing is done, you, you won't be able to glory in my presence. No, no, this is all about me. Look around, church family, look at ourselves. Has God chosen us? No doubt he has. We're his church. The church of the living God, the Bible says. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And if we make a difference in this world, if we make a difference in this community, God has chosen people like you and me. Not many wise. Oh, few of you are, perhaps. Certainly not the guy standing in front of you. Not many mighty. Not many noble. Why? so that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, the story of the Cleveland Baptist Church is a pretty incredible one. And I have to tell you that as I've heard it over and over again, I, I suppose I never get tired of hearing it. It, it, becomes, it becomes more and more astounding with every telling. 
Because really, what we have here should, should never have been. Should never have been. There's, 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 no, there's no way to explain what you see here tonight except to say, but God did it. God did it. No, no man did this. No group of men did this. And the men that were involved were not very wise. They were not very mighty. They were not very noble. And they tell you that. God did it. And he did it so that no flesh should glory in his presence. We see Gideon's weakness. But notice, secondly, God's patience. God's patience. The scriptures tell us in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, that the Jews require a sign. You, you remember that, don't you? The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Well, I, I have to tell you, that was, certainly was true of Gideon. Gideon was a Jew. He, he says, I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. And we find Gideon seeking a sign of confirmation that this really was the Lord and that God was really calling him to do this work of deliverance. We find Gideon looking for a sign on four distinct occasions. In, in just a couple of chapters, we find Gideon basically saying, God, I, I won't take another step unless you do this for me. Now, this is somewhat, this is somewhat uh, you know, bold and daring. I wouldn't advise it. I wouldn't encourage it. We believe in living a life of faith, but we certainly see Gideon asking for four signs and God giving, showing him great patience and doing exactly what he asks on four separate occasions. I just want to walk through the signs and just, just to show you God's patience. In Judges 6, 17, Gideon asked for a sign when this angel showed up. Gideon asked in, in verse number 17, look what he says. He says, and he said unto him, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. It's almost as if Gideon's saying, Lord, Lord, if, 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 if this is real, and this isn't just some weird dream I'm having, then, then prove it to me with some sign. That, that's essentially what he's saying. Or, or maybe he's saying this. He's saying, if you're really who you claim to be, and you're not just some neighbor from down the street who dressed up like an angel and you know, showed up and, and, uh, and, and, is, and is pulling my leg or pranking me, then, then, then show me a sign. Do something special. Do something unique. That's, that's, that was where, where Gideon's faith was. God's angel responded in Judges 6.21 by taking the staff that he held in his hand. And Gideon, by that point, had brought some flesh and had brought some unleavened bread and he would placed it on a, on a little rock there and, 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 and that angel took that staff and he touched that bread and he touched that flesh and when he did, immediately a fire rose up from the rock to consume, to consume the flesh and the unleavened cake that Gideon had brought, sort of a form of an offering. So God was patient with Gideon. You want a sign? Here it is. When I touch these things, fire is going to consume them, though, though there's no wood here, though there's no starter here, and though there's, there's none of the things that you'd normally have to have to have a fire. He's, he's proving, he's proving that he's an angel of the Lord. In Judges 6, in verse number 35, Gideon commits to his calling Notice what he does. The Bible says, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher, and unto Zebulun, and unto Naphtali. And they came up to meet them. And, and you're reading this, you're saying, oh, perfect. Gideon, Gideon is, is rolling here. He, he got the sign, and he's ready to march forward, and he's called all the men to him. And you're sitting here going, man, he's on top of things. And yet the very next verse tells us, no, oh, wait a minute. Gideon's got second thoughts. Look at verse 36. Gideon said unto God, 
If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And I'm thinking to myself, Gideon, you've got, you've got probably close to 30,000 men you know, kind of camping all around you. It's a little too late for this sort of thing. I mean, you, you've called, you sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and you sent messengers to these other tribes, and these men have responded, and they're here. I'm just showing you how unlikely of a hero Gideon is. And now all of these men are here, they're gathered around, and Gideon is going, okay, now wait a minute, Lord, wait a minute. I, I know you showed me a sign a, a few days ago, and that was really neat, that was really cool, but I'm going to need you to show me another sign. Now, that's essentially what he's saying. Verse number 37, he says, Behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. You know, um, I, I suppose dew serves a purpose. I know it does, but I hate it. I don't know why I hate dew. I suppose it's because, you know, I camp about once a year. One night, it's the father-son camp out, and I'm too cheap to buy a new tent. And so my tent gets dew all over it and the dew drips on me and it you know, gets in my sleeping bag. I mean, I hate dew. But you know, you know as well as I do that it's there every morning. It's just, it's just what God does. One way that he chooses to water the earth. And Gideon said, I'm gonna set this fleece out. And Lord, here's what I want. I want, I want to come here tomorrow morning and I want there to be, I want there to be dew all over this fleece but I went on all the ground, all around it, for it to be dry. And if you'll do that for me, then I'll know. Of course, you know the story. He comes out the next day. The Bible says that he takes that fleece, and I mean, he, he, he wrings it dry. Water drips out of it. But listen, all around that fleece, it was dry as a bone. You say, wow, okay. All right, well, you've proven yourself, Lord, so I guess it's time to go. But that's not what he does. In verse number 38, Gideon said unto God, verse number 39, Gideon said to God, let not thine anger be hot against me. Gideon already knows he's stepping in it. He knows. He knows. Uh, he, 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 you know, he knows that, that, that God is not going to be pleased. Lord, please, don't, don't be mad at me. Lord, let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Well, actually, Gideon, this is the third time. And we're going to have a fourth time still that you're going to need a sign. But nevertheless, God, God, what I'm saying is God is patient. Isn't he patient with you? Oh, how many times, how many times have I said, Lord, if you'll do this, I'm all yours. And the Lord does it, and I'm not all his. Lord, if you'll prove yourself in this area, I'll never doubt you again. And yet, just like Gideon, we're prisoners of the moment. And we'll come to a dry spell. We'll come to a period where Things are out of sorts just a little bit and immediately sort of back up and we walk away from that. And yet God is patient. In Judges chapter number seven, God brings Gideon to the brink of the conflict. I mean, they're right there. I mean, it's the night that, they're, that they're gonna, this battle is going to begin. And yet, the, the, the scripture doesn't say, if you have to read it between the lines a little bit, but it seems as if Gideon once again is filled with fear. And I almost get the sense that if God doesn't do what he does here in this particular portion, that Gideon and his men might never have advanced. And you can sort of understand why he was a little nervous. You see, you see when he asked for the two previous signs, the fleece, he had 32,000 men. Now he has three, 300. The Midianite army has not shrunk in an in a equal proportion. The Midianite army still stands at 135,000. 
So think about this. You got 135,000 to 300. The odds are not good. And it's as if Gideon is starting, his faith is starting to waver again. And God says, Gideon, I want you to do something. He says, I want you to go down into the, sneak down into the tents where the Midianite army is. I just want you to kind of observe something. I don't know how many tents there were. There must have been thousands of tents. Gideon brought one of his closest men with him, and they snuck down in the cover of darkness in the middle of the night. They got to a, they got to a tent. I don't, I don't know how God did it, but he brought him to the very one that he wanted him to be at. And all of a sudden, there's a stir inside that tent. Gideon and his, Gideon and his partner, his assistant probably, they're, they're getting as quiet as they can. Did we make too much noise? Did we step on a branch? Did we, did, did we alert them that, that, that we're here? But no, that's not what's happening at all. One man is waking up, and he's just had a dream. And the other man wakes up because the other man is stirred. And, and, and he says, what, what, what's happening? You, you can read it when you, get ch- when you get a chance in Judges chapter 7. And the man says, I just had a weird dream. So what was your dream? And he said, he said that there was, a, there was a piece of cake. My dreams normally include that as well, just, just in case you're wondering, right? There was a piece of cake, a piece of bread, and it rolled down a cliff. And it, and it, and it rolled right into a tent. And it completely collapsed the tent. Now, now, you have to understand that a piece of bread is a pretty feeble, weak type of a thing. And a tent may not necessarily be a, you know, it's not like it's a building or anything, but I mean, you know, it's no match. And so the man hears this, he hears this dream, and immediately it's as if the Holy Spirit of God fills him, and he says, I got an interpretation for you. He says, what's the interpretation of my dream? He said, this is nothing but Gideon. Gideon and his men are going to take us out and they're going to destroy us. And here's Gideon. He's sitting outside this tent and his partner's with him and they're listening to all of these things take place. And the Bible says that his, that, that his heart was filled with faith and with confidence. And he says, this, this is what we've been looking for. This was the sign. Four signs in. <laughs> and Gideon finally has it. You know what I'm saying? I'm just simply saying the moral of the story here is God is patient. Now listen, God doesn't always work the same way. God doesn't always work the same way. But listen, our God is long-suffering. He's patient with us as his people, isn't he? We don't deserve it. God is faithful. I want you to notice, thirdly, we see God's priority. I'm almost done. Let me just share this thought with you. What was God trying to accomplish in all of this? Number one, he wanted to defeat the Midianites and deliver Israel. There's no doubt about that. The Midianites had made life difficult for Israel. They had removed joy from God's people. God designed that his people live in the land and that they enjoy the land that he had given them. But their sin prevented this from being the reality. And the Midianites were a rod of correction to them. But God was done using this rod. It had accomplished its purpose. The people were now crying out to God for, for deliverance and were repenting of their sin. And so here was, here's what God was going to accomplish. God was going to destroy the Midianites. He was going to defeat them, and he was going to bring liberty to the nation of Israel. That's not all God was trying to do here. Notice, secondly, what's God's priority? Not just to defeat the enemy and deliver Israel, but here's what God wanted to accomplish, and that is this, to receive glory and praise for this deliverance. To receive glory and praise for this deliverance. Listen, why choose a man like Gideon? Unknown, poor, weak in faith, weak in self-confidence, 
needing sign after sign after sign. Why would God choose a man like this to lead the effort? Why allow, in the story, we didn't look at this, but why allow the fearful to be excused? Remember, remember God, there's 32,000, and, and Gideon gives the command that God gave him. Listen, if you're afraid, you don't want to be here, go home. And 22,000 men left. Why, why do that? Why then take them to the, to the well there and, and the spring and, and, and say, oh, listen, everybody that kind of puts their head down on the water and drinks like they're lapping from a dog, separate them from those that, that, that put it in their mouth and sort of make a cup out of their mouth and, and drink like this. And by the time it was all said and done, there's only 300 left. Why do all of that? Why, why whittle the troops? God, listen, God did all of this so that the army of Israel could be as weak as humanly possible. God did all of this so that the army could be led by a man who may be one of the weakest men of faith in the Bible. And when this battle is over, and Israel is free from Midian, no one would give glory to Gideon. No one would give glory to his 300. All glory would go to God and God alone. That's the whole point. So listen, remember this. Next time, your already weakened state or condition is further diminished. Sometimes we'll say, I, I don't know if I could take much more. And maybe God's saying, I'm trying to get you as weak as I possibly can. Because when I get you weak, then I can be strong. And then we can really accomplish some things. Sometimes we get frustrated and we grow weary and we grow upset can't take much more, or when will it ever end? It may just be that God says, you remember Gideon? Remember he had 32,000, I dismissed 22 grand, and then I dismissed another 9,700, and he just had three. You remember that? I was making him as weak as he could possibly be so that, so that my power and my might, my strength could be on full display. And God may be bringing you, he may be bringing me, he may be bringing us to a similar state of Gideon and his pathetic army, because that's what it was, so that when he delivers us, when he delivers you, when you find yourself on the other side, he alone receives all the glory and the honor and the praise. Fourthly and finally, we see God's power. There's an incredible, incredible couple of phrases that I want to call to your attention will be done tonight. Would you look in Judges 7 and verse number 21? Say, what did did Gideon's army do? What was was their role in this battle? (laughs) Verse 21 tells us what they did. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the host ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets. And the Lord said, every man's sword, the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. I can imagine as these men return from battle. Tell us, what was it like? Oh man, how many, how many men did you slay? How, how much blood is on that sword of yours? <laughs> the guy says, well, to be honest, I didn't even have a sword. I had a trumpet, I had a pitcher, and I had a lamp. Okay, so you burned them all to death. Is that what you did? 
Or you, or you, or you, played, a, you played a trumpet so bad that it was so awful that they ran for their lives. Is that what happened? Right? I mean, he's sort of... And they would have to say, no. No, I... So I, I, I found a place on top of this ridge and I just stood there. <laughs> That's it. I stood in my place. You, you didn't... You didn't charge down into the valley, pulling out a sword, chopping. Well, I don't want to go down there. But, but you, you didn't do all of that? No, I, I, I stood in my place, and I blew my trumpet, and I smashed my pitcher, and I held my torch. Well, then, how did the enemy die? And the answer is, <laughs> the Lord did it. The Lord did it. And that's what the Bible says. The Lord did it. In Judges 8, would you look in verse number 3? Look what Gideon says. God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian. Listen, the answer is God did it. And the whole point, the whole point is this, is that God chooses weak, pathetic, despised, poor, miserable, low in confidence, and sometimes even low in faith. God uses those, he chooses and he uses those kinds of people. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid all along we've gotten this whole thing wrong. And we've thought in order to be used by God, I gotta be somebody. I gotta look a certain way and I gotta talk a certain way and I gotta have a certain spiel and I gotta, I gotta know this inside and out and I gotta be sharp and I gotta be educated and I gotta be professional and I gotta be strong. And you know what God is wanting, wanting us all to know as a church? He's saying, no. He's saying, he's saying, you come to me, you come to me understanding who you really are, understanding that you're not enough. And you come to me with that understanding and I'll prove to you and I'll prove to everyone around you, yeah, you're not enough, but I'm more than enough. Sometimes, sometimes, listen, sometimes the battle is not won by us charging into the enemy camp with our swords on fire and, and, our, and, our, and our guns blazing. Sometimes, sometimes the battle is won by just standing still in our place and just saying, Lord, you, you have at it. There's the enemy. I, I, I'm powerless. There's 135,000 of them and there's 300 of us Lord, there it is. You do your thing, and I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to watch you. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do what you want me to do. But, Lord, it, it's, it's your job. You take them out, and that's exactly what God did.